Yeah, you take on the church in Utah, you don't do it without consequences. 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 I realized, oh, I'm a bigot. Consequences. Consequences. I mean, I never in my life did I try to make things more difficult on anyone because of sexual orientation, gender identity. But that's far from being a friend. That's far from being human. Consequences. 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 God, I tried to kill myself. Consequences. Consequences. Whatever driving that doesn't just go away. Consequences. Consequences. I said, hey, I have a couple friends who are doing ayahuasca. Have you ever heard of that? No. And so we looked at it and I said, would you ever want to do this? And she said, yes. Consequences. Consequences. Right, it's part of the lore of ayahuasca. And so, you know, did I just adopt that lore and create something in my mind to show myself some things? I don't know. So I create this scene, this nature scene, and then I'm just running it through in the style of Monet, in the style of Matisse, in the style of Degas, in the style of... And I just had no idea I was that creative. It was just unbelievably beautiful and just soul cleansing to see that I could do that with my mind. I didn't know I had that kind of creativity. It was just like eight hours of nonstop sex in my mind. And uh, then I purged, then I threw up. And it's, I think at that point, my brain changed. The wiring changed that I realized, oh, wow. I have been misinterpreting things. Oh, I'm a bigot. I mistake sex for connectivity. That's far from being human. The answer was, Steve loves me as much as he can, period. It's not enough. Consequences. You know, what I think neither of us realized at the time is I, I couldn't love anyone. Consequences. This is Infants on Thrones. Baby steps. Who wants someone to preach to? The philosophies of men. I like magical toys. Who wants religion, do you? Mingled with humor. I don't believe in them. There will be many willing to preach to you the philosophies of men mingled with humor. We are evolving. Baby steps. You can buy in this world of money. the good in everything look for the people who will set your soul free it always seems impossible until it's done look for the good in everyone this is part three of my interview with steve urquhart enjoy and so you know, it's tough to love me because I won't show much. And when I do, and I hope in all of this, I should be speaking past tense because the thing I'm moving past it. And so Sarah really scared me because I knew she loved me and I loved her. So I don't want to disappoint her and all this. And so I couldn't really reach out to her. I couldn't reach out to people who truly loved me because of the shame. And well, what if they stop loving me and all of that? And, but then when I took it, you know, took all those pills I just I'm thinking of my kids and you know I've although I was absent more than I should have been during this um 
I'm a good dad and really love them. They know they're loved. I'm kind to them, good to them. And so I was just thinking about them. And so just, you know, just shoving fingers and fists down my throat and threw a lot up and didn't know it took me a long time to get them up. And so I was really stoned and blurry when I got them up and uh, didn't know how much I got up. Didn't so felt myself passing out and didn't know if I was going to wake up. And I did woke up, got dressed and went to the Capitol the next day and sat in committee and heard bills. How, how long was it before you told anybody that you'd done that? Um, I didn't tell anyone for years and wow. then it became, I would tell people, you know, I'd tell some friends and really dealing with the fact, God, I tried to kill myself that in that, whatever driving that doesn't just go away. And so, you know, it's only recently that I'm kind of dealing with that on a human level of like, wow, that's a big deal. You know, yeah. it's like I stole a car and I didn't see it as a big deal. I'm like, wow, I tried to kill myself. That's, that's really a big deal. And, you know, I see that you have uh, a Beatles poster behind you. Uh, the, the Beatles keep coming up and it's let it be. I've had it. It's come up in a couple ceremonies and that's what they played at my brother's funeral. It was uh, 1970 that he died and they played let it be in long and winding road and so i really in those two ceremonies just mourned him mm. saw him saw my parents saw me and so you know i don't know how six-year-olds should mourn i don't know if they really do because they don't understand mm. but i think you probably as you go along in life you deal with some things you look back and I just didn't. I don't know if that's my weird psyche or because I had the answer key, but, you know, I really mourned my brother and mourned what I lost. He he provided one of two sanctuaries, his room, because my dad didn't dare go in there. Um, and then, you know, my grandfather's farm and, you know, not realizing this was the case, what I carried through life. I thought I carried sympathy for my brother and understanding what I carried is just feeling like he had destroyed one of my sanctuaries that how, how dare he abandon me. And, uh, you know, these are things that I think humans have to deal with. And I just didn't until the plants opened up some doors for me. Yeah. So, so how, how, how long did you go from that night when you took the oxy and tried to kill yourself to when you did discover, I, I think it was, you were outside of Amsterdam, you did an ayahuasca ceremony with your wife. Yeah, what year was that? So it would have been like 14 that I did that in the hotel room. Um, and, you know, during that time, uh, uh, you know, to those both, both affairs, you know, blew up um, just, is gross is vulgar and so sarah you know she's was it something when when those affairs blew up did it um stain your reputation politically was was this something that was having an impact on your professional life as well as your interpersonal life no it it 
none of it was public. Mm. And so, you know, Sarah was really questioning herself. Is she just being a fool? Mm. Is she being uh, a doormat? Should she blow me up? You know, is it right for her to protect this secret, which really harmed her and the family? And, uh, you know, I would love for someone to talk with her about all of this. We've talked about it tons, you know, now that I'm learning to communicate. And um, so, you know, what her conclusion was is I had I'd accumulated a lot of chits with her, a lot of credit in the bank that she knew that my heart was good, that she she thought I loved her and she though I wasn't acting like it. And she always knew how much I loved and valued the kids. And so she knew I was lost. And uh, so she would tell me things like she could see me. I couldn't see me that she knew me. I didn't know me. And so she's just like, look, I want you to be healthy for the sake of the kids. And, you know, I want to get you healthy. Then we can decide what we do. And, uh, you know, I think part of it is she realized that I was somewhat, well, she really, why do I, why do I qualify that? I think she realized I was suicidal and just really lost and screwed up. And so, um, this hurt her, of course. And here's, she, the level of love and devotion she has to me is phenomenal. I think very few people get that. And which means she's given up a lot of other things for me and our relationship. And man, I just shit all over her and our relationship. So by the time I left the legislature, uh, we were both very wounded. And what and year was that? 2016? In the end of 16. Oh, oh. Okay. And so... Did you guys uh, do the ayahuasca trip in 14? Is that right? No. No, it was after I was out of the lesson. Okay. Okay. So it was 16. We moved up. Sarah sold her business. And um, we moved up to Salt Lake just figuring, okay, let's try all of this with a clean slate. And so uh, our son was going to MIT. We were in Cambridge. And uh, she and I were just killing some time while he was, you know, in class or something. And so I, I said, hey, I have a couple of friends who are doing ayahuasca. Have you ever heard of that? No. And so I'm like, well, I don't quite understand it. Let's do you want to discuss it? And she's like, yes. And uh, so we looked at it and I said, would you ever want to do this? And she said, yes. And I mean, she is. Sarah's such a straight arrow. She's such a rule follower that I'm like, what? And so, you know, I think her calculation was we couldn't really be doing worse. You know, this, this, she liked what she was reading the stories. And so, you know, a few months later we're in Amsterdam and uh, I just do some Google foo and find someone. And uh, that night, 
she said, come by my place. We'll do a session. So it was just her and Sarah and me. And uh, it was life changing. What, what was your experience like? Do, do you remember? I'm sure you remember that first experience. What, cause, cause you, you'd had the experience of alcohol, oxy, pot. How was ayahuasca different from any altered state of consciousness that you had experienced previously, previously? Um, all of those things, uh, they pull you out of life. Um, I'm going to qualify that a bit with cannabis. Um, you know, cannabis, some people just need as, as medicine, as patients for physical pain and other things, but cannabis now for me, it, it's more of a psychedelic my mind knows where i want to be so mm. you know cannabis cannabis can be the positive or negative um but ayahuasca it's i saw some things i saw and i entered my very first time i entered that mystical state of consciousness which i call the holy of holies the sanctum sanctorum where every good religion well every religion has started that someone unless someone's just making it up they had a mystical experience and so i'm there and uh i'm there with the madre which again i don't know if that's is there a real entity that i was with is just is this just the power of suggestion because you're talking about talk, madre grandmother ayahuasca is right talking about okay Right. It's part of the lore of ayahuasca. And so, yeah. you know, did I just adopt that lore and create something in my mind to show myself some things? I don't know, but I'm there with her. And so I, I create this scene. It's, it's this nature scene. And then I'm just running it through in the style of Monet in the style of Motis in the style of Degas in the style of O'Keefe in the style of, and, I just had no idea I was that creative. I mean, it's, it was just unbelievably beautiful and, and just soul cleansing to see that I could do that with my mind. I didn't know I had that kind of creativity. And then um, the scene, it then just started, it turned into desert and was just burning up and, uh, I, I didn't know what that was for several years. I, I just couldn't stop it. It was just burning up. Everything was dying and I, I lost it. And, you know, at the time it was like, okay, that was, that was a weird part of this. And so I'll, I'll get back to that. But then Sarah, she being pragmatic, uh, she came in with a list of five things and uh, she loves her lists and loves, you know, crossing them off and doing them. She, she gets a lot done. And so one of her items was Steve, question mark. And uh, so the, you know, the medicine kind of finds us where we are. And so she got answers to those five things, which she'd taken them to her therapist. Those were vexing questions, losing her faith. I mean, they were, they were serious life questions. And so she showed me, she wrote it down and showed me the answers she got to question Steve question mark. The answer was Steve loves me as much as he can period. 
it's not enough. Mm. And so at the time we both were like, yeah, yeah. <laughs> you know, I'm, I'm not a, she didn't say this, but we both kind of figured I'm not a complete individual. I don't have the capacity to love her as much as she wants to be loved as much as she should be loved. You know, what I think neither of us realized at the time is I, I couldn't love anyone fully. And so we're that like, okay, really what has to do with your example with your father kind of being absent. You didn't see somebody maybe doing that so that you know how to replicate that. Do you think? It, it probably. I mean, you know, I had some, yeah. I mean, people, people who I loved, they weren't there for me as a kid. Right. And so, you know, again, people who, I love, they scare the fuck out of me. Mm -hmm. And, and so Sarah and I figured, okay, Steve, question mark, you know, that I, I love her as much as the canvas, not enough. And so we would talk about, cause she was super wounded at this point. She had kind of brought the ship into port. You know, we, we finished the legislative stuff without blowing up publicly without our family blowing up in headlines and in a blaze of glory. And so she, at that point, after completing a hellacious task, she's like, I'm tired. I'm hurt. And, and she had two down years where she didn't know what to do to heal. And we were just, okay, what do we do? You know, I'm getting healthier. What does it mean for us? What, what should we do with our relationship? Kids are largely gone. What do we do? And so that's part of the journey of the medicine is just realizing, I mean, me becoming whole, realizing that I don't love anyone, haven't loved anyone fiercely, wholly, that I've only loved partially. So that came in an ayahuasca session and mushroom session. And I'm just sobbing, realizing I've never, I don't know what it means to love. I've never fiercely loved anyone. And so I integrate all of these experiences with Sarah. And um, so she reminded me, she said, do you remember what I got in my first one? That Steve loves me as much as he can. It's not enough. And we realized, oh, I just don't know how to love. I don't what does this mean? So just trying to learn to love more. And then, uh, you know, had a ceremony that just was off the hook. It was crazy. It was just, well, I'll go ahead and tell you. Um, it was just like eight hours of nonstop sex in my mind. And uh, so then I purged, then I threw up. And it's, I think at that point, my brain changed that the wiring changed that I realized, oh, wow, I have been misinterpreting things. I mistake sex for connectivity. And what I subsequently learned is for intimacy, that I want intimacy with people. And, you know, women who love me, it's like, okay, so when do we have sex? What what does this mean? You know, because again, it's not seeing women. It's a shallowness. It's like, cause that's what I was saying to Sarah after this. I'm like, I'm like, you know, I think I really 
connect with women, but there's this thing that gets in the way. And so she said, Steve, you connect with humans. She said, you just do. And with men, it's just not an issue. It doesn't come down to sex. You're just super affectionate. I mean, all my friends, I just, I kiss them. I grope them. You know, I, I'm just, we just love each other fiercely and, and it's no big deal, but there's this barrier with women like, well, do we, do we have sex now? Cause isn't that the point of women? Right. I mean, they're the womb They're the, And so I was just denying the divinity of women who I loved, who wanted to be close to me. And so, you know, and I'm just talking, Sarah and I just are having these great communications where I'm talking about the two women that I had these affairs with that I'm just, I mourned them. I'm really sad that I still could have had this lifelong relationship with two wonderful women, but I fucked it up because I came incomplete misconstruing what things could have been, what they should have been. And so I denied myself real connection, real intimacy. So I'm, I'm, I mean, I'm covering a lot of ground in a short amount of time here. I'm sure it feels like rambling, but these are, you know, months, weeks, these are many different ceremonies that I'm trying to tie into one narrative. I hope it's not too rambly, but well, you know. let me, I, I'd, I'd like to ask a question about love. So, yeah. so what, what did you, what did you learn about what it means to love and what it means to have true intimacy? And, and you don't have to give me the Dallin Oaks uh, three point list, but something close to that. <laughs> like what, what is it, what does it mean to love? Um, so I'll, uh, I'll tell you a story involving Christine Sinquist. Right. Um, so when I got out of the legislature, I was on uh, a board that dealt with uh, restaurants and it dealt with alcohol. And the legislature uh, was passing an alcohol reform bill. Now, the reason they were doing it is because they had this thing that you couldn't see people mix drinks because that was going to corrupt the youth of Athens. And so um, that was called the Zion curtain and they were getting a lot. The church moves when it is embarrassed. And so it didn't like that. Everyone was calling this the Zion curtain. It had to end that. So that's the reason it wanted to reform the alcohol laws. And, you know, as much as I say, I love the church, love what it did for me, love people who are in the church and, and people who have graduated the church in the political arena. And I think this is largely because of Marty. You cannot believe a word it says. It is the most dishonest player on Capitol Hill. And so what I realized is it was feeling pressure and it needed to move. And so the leader of our group, dear friend, um, she was sitting at the table with them, believing what they were saying, that they were going to fix it later. They were going to do this, that, and the other. And so I'm just pulling my hair out. I'm like, you cannot believe a word it says. You have the advantage in this. They need the term Zion Curtain to go away. Don't capitulate. Don't give on these things for promises because they're not going to deliver on those. Those aren't promises. Those are lies. 
And so I was in DC when this is kind of going through the house. And so, uh, she said to me, you know, I called her, said, don't, don't, don't. And so she said, Steve, why do you think you're the only person who gets this? And so I, I, I said, well, I do think I'm the only person on the planet who has shoved a bill down the church's throat. I said, I do know some things here. And so, you know, that just escalated. And so, you know, I, I'm basically like, look, I love you, but to hell with this, man. I'm, I'm not, I can't do it. And so I got off that board and I'm so ashamed of that because she was in the trenches doing her best and the fog of war, when you're taking on the church and you have these, the most skilled liars in Utah telling you something. And she just felt so alone And yeah, I think my points were right. They were valid, but I was just so incensed that she wasn't going along with what I was saying in, in, if people are thinking, wow, that sounds sexist, patriarchal, I'm sure it was. And so that's kind of who I was, you know, that, that I, I was right. I still think I was right about the thing, but the thing didn't matter as much as the relationship. I didn't love this person like she needed to be loved because I thought it was about the issue. Fast forward with some experience with the medicine, with some lessons on what love is, lessons on the value of other human beings. I'm helping Christine with plant medicine. And our experience would not have been what it was had I been the person I was just a year or two before, that I was more capable at that point of loving Christine, which meant that I saw her and I saw how alone she was when people were abandoning her and the cause. And because I loved her, I'm just like, what do you need? (laughs) You know, yes, I've spent 16 years in this body. I have taken on the church and beat it. I do know some things but I am your servant. What do you need? And so that's what love is. It becomes more about the other person than about me. And so that's how I present myself much more these days. I'm sure I still have a ways to go where it's when I interact with someone, it's what does this person need? Because I'm whole, I'm good. I am solid what I need out of this is to take care of this person. So to me, that is what I have discovered and what I continue to discover. That's long. All of these stories are long. I hope they're worth something. <laughs> they're incredibly yeah. powerful. Yeah. I think they, um, they shed a light on human connection. And, and honestly, Glenn, I did feel so alone and abandoned when Steve 
just just to give you context on what was going on in my life in 2016, as Steve was leaving um, the Senate, was a big, huge year on the Hill for I think him and me. That's when we were trying to push plant medicine. My my interaction with Steve was first the pat on the head in 2014 that whole plant cannabis is never going to happen in Utah. 2016, two years later, my next interaction with Steve is, hey, let's go have a shot in my office. It was the last night of the session. And then two years later, I am just broken and the church is about to just destroy us and, and the patients and everything we fought for. And this new Steve was there for me. And it was, it's been quite a journey to have that love and that connection from somebody as a mentor, a brother. It's just been such, I don't know other word I've been trained so long, but it has been such a blessing. Well, and, and you look at the dynamics of both of these situations. Uh, I'm dealing with two powerful, competent women who are, in, in these, both of these battles over alcohol and then over cannabis, they're the only woman in the room. They have all of these men who, who are just against them, against their cause. In, in the one scenario, I just become another man who's telling her she's screwing it up. You know, and, and I think that that's what happens when you don't see women. And, you know, then I see Christine, she's the only woman there. And that's why I said, this is, this is as much sexism as it is about cannabis. If you were a man, you'd be treated differently. And so, you know, I'm going to, I'm going to swing the sword. I'm, I'm, I'm here with you. And, and, you know, I threw a lot at it and, and lost a lot, you know, relationships because I was, standing up for my friend, someone who I love. And it doesn't really matter any of those things that I lost because they were, they weren't to lose them over this. They weren't worth having. I remember it, you calling me and you were worried about losing your job over this. And, I, and that was a moment that I was like, Oh my heavens, I can't believe that we are in this situation together. It's when I, felt the most love and the most protected that somebody was out there on the battlefield with me risking their all for what we believed was right. And I don't think I had had experienced that in my life to have that kind of friendship, love and devotion to well, be, no. go ahead, sorry. To, to be out there. There was just very few of us left on that field. And it was, a wonderful energy that came in. Steve came in, horns blazing and everything, like we're gonna get it past this finish line. And and not just past the finish line, you've been there for the past two years as everything we said was going to happen has unfolded, the corruption, patients being hurt, and it's been so hard for me not to keep doing. And we do keep doing, we do keep doing things and we do keep exposing things, but I don't think I could have made it without that. I really don't, Steve. Yeah. I mean, ultimately, I think that I did lose my job over this. It, it never was a good fit. And, you know, ultimately, I walked away from it just because it was an unwinnable solution, but situation. But, yeah, you, you take on the church in Utah. Oh. You don't do it without consequences. 
Yeah. So, so let me, let me hear your uh, Deva and Goliath story, Steve, when, when you uh, took on the Mormon church and, and uh, like, w- when was this, what was the issue and some of your roadblocks, how did you succeed? Okay. So um, Brandy Balkan, who was running Equality Utah at the time, she drove down to St. George. So four hours from Salt Lake to meet with me to tell me why the state should pass legislation prohibiting discrimination against gay people in housing and employment. And uh, I listened to her. I said, thank had you. This, had this been happening, that there, there was a lot of discrimination that was happening due to um, sexual orientation? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. Um, you know, people who felt they couldn't come out at work because they knew that people around them, people in other work situations had been fired because they were gay or trans something. So uh, I said, you know, thanks. I'm, I'm with you, Brandy, but my constituents, they aren't. And so I think that's my job is to do their will have a nice trip home. And um, so you know, a year or so later, my daughter Zella is going into her senior year of high school at Dixie High. And uh, I said, what, what are you going to do this year? And she said, well, I'm going to do debate. I'm going to be president of the Gay Straight Alliance. Um, I think I want to do, I'm like, da, 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 hold on, go back. And so she said, are you asking if, if I'm gay? And I said, well, yeah, I guess that's one of the questions. Tell me what this is, why. And so she said, I'm an ally and I see my friends be bullied. They get bullied all the time and I want to stick up for them. I think that's the right thing to do. And I said, you know, God bless you. You've always had this sense of justice. You've, you've always been a warrior for the underdog. I love that. Do you need to be president? Because that's going to give me some some grief in politics. I said, if you do need to be president to make this happen, that's great, because I love you so much more than this temporary gig. Um, but if you don't need to be president, that's great, too. And so she said, OK, I'll think about that. You know, and, and so I tell that story to some people and they're going, God, what an asshole father. No, we're a political family. And so, you know, she that conversation, we've talked about it. That wasn't offensive to her at all. This is how political families do it. And uh, so she came back to me a couple days later. She said, I'm going to be president. I need to be. And I said, great, let's do the hell out of this. And uh, so then a constituent, Marta, she sent me an email just telling me how Zella was a complete piece of shit. Obviously, Sarah and I were as parents too. You know, this was horrible. It was sinful. Um, in, 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 in reaction to your daughter becoming the president of the Gay Straight Alliance at, at the school? Right, right. Mm. And so that was the grief that I knew was going to come my way. Mm. But I didn't know what my reaction to it would be. I misconstrued yeah. that. And so... Marta, her her intent was to move me, and she did. She moved me in the opposite direction. Where reading that email, rereading the email, I realized, oh, this is just hatred. 
This is pure hatred and bigotry. You know, and again, how did I not know that before? A lot of my life is missing stuff that's right in front of my face. But reading her email, I'm like, wow, this is just hatred. And so I'm like, okay, I need to re-examine where I am on this. But then I saw my daughter who, uh, she's, she is born a unicorn. And so it's tough for a unicorn in St. George, Utah, you know? And um, so she didn't have tons of friends because Zella is different and she's magical. And, you know, some people didn't see that. A lot of people didn't see that magic, but, Oh my God, the gay straight Alliance that would come over to our house, all of those beautiful, fantastic, wonderful kids. They would just love so hard on my Zella and she would love so hard on them. I didn't know who was gay. I didn't know who was lesbian. I didn't know who was anything. I didn't know who's ally. I just knew that these were great kids. And I realized, oh, I'm a bigot. That if I knew someone was gay, even, you know, I mean, I never in my life did I, did I try to make things more difficult on anyone because of sexual orientation, gender identity. But that's far from being a friend. That's far from being human. Mm. So even my friends who were gay, I'd be like, well, he's gay and he has great musical taste. He's really smart. And, but that was the first thing, you know, it's like, wow, this person's gay. Um, well, that's, that's bigotry. Right. And seeing these kids with my daughter, no, all I saw was, kids who love my daughter i saw them as humans first and so um uh, 2013 uh during the session brandy balkan equality utah came to me kind of desperate she said today is the last day to file a bill we thought we had a sponsor to run and they wanted a republican sponsor by this point that was the way they figured they would pass it. I didn't even ask. Is that what you were Republican? Yeah. Okay. Are you and still? So, uh, I just disaffiliated uh, like two weeks ago. Hmm. Okay. I can't take it anymore. I, you know, I believe in a lot of the things Republicans talk about, but they don't believe them. So I don't want to be part of this. Um, so, um, she said, we, we thought we had a Republican sponsor. He backed out. Will you run the bill? I said, absolutely. And so she was, she was, that was the extent of our conversation. I said, I will. I don't know a thing about it, Brandy. I'm going to use all the wrong words. I'm, I need to, you're going to have to get me up to speed. She said, I'd love to do it. And, um, uh, so that was the ride of a lifetime. That is, you know, so that was before I found plant medicine, but that really was life changing to me. Um, 
that helped open my heart and open my mind and realize that I really was seeing the world in humans or I wasn't seeing them. You know, again, my bit about seeing women, I didn't see LGBTQ people because I, it jumped out at me, their sexuality, you know, I don't care anymore. I just see, I don't, I don't give any shits what someone's sexuality is. It's not an issue to me. Um, but so that first year, uh, we managed to get it out of committee, which that was this huge success. That's what we wanted to do. I saw some really profiles encourage profiles of courage by some of my fellow senators. I saw cowards and liars out of some others. Um, but it really was this phenomenal ride. And so the next year, I'll just keep walking you forward. You can edit this however you want. So, yeah. And, and I, and I'm curious, like, what kind of opposition did you have from the church? Yeah. What, what did they do? Um, they just whispered in senators ears of what could happen, what couldn't happen. And so uh, they were completely controlling the strings on this. And they so, sat, yeah, they ran a what? second bill. They ran a second bill to undermine well, advocates bill. We're not there yet. Okay. Sorry. Got too we're not excited. there yet. So okay. I was kind of playing by their rules because that's what everyone did up to that point. Yeah. You can't take on the church. You can't call it a liar. You can't. So 2014, that's where uh, Judge Bob Shelby, um, the extraordinary, brilliant Bob Shelby, um, wrote his opinion on Kitchen v. Herbert. That was the first domino to fall after the Supreme Court's uh, Defense of Marriage Act mm -hmm. and Prop 8 opinions. So when those opinions came out, they didn't really mention the 14th Amendment um, equal protection clause. So this whole time I'm working with Cliff Roski, this constitutional genius um, law professor out of the U. And so we just had some fun conversations where he said, a judge will know what to do with this. This is an equal protection decision. And I'm like, how so, Cliff? They don't mention it. It's not even in there. So sure enough, Shelby, he saw that hook and he hung his opinion on it, uh, saying that uh, same-sex marriage was the law of the land in Utah. And that was the first domino that really fell after those Supreme Court cases. And Shelby authored such a great opinion. His reasoning was so solid that that really helped with the subsequent cases. But that was in December. And so... Uh, that just made things all sorts of topsy-turvy for the upcoming January session. And there, the lawyers for the church, oh, I'm sorry, state of Utah, um, they hired, the state hired are special you, are, you, are you saying that there's no difference between the Mormon church and the, and the state of Utah? Uh, no, I'm not saying that broadly. Actually, people, some people would be surprised at how little the church has to do with day-to-day -day administration of the state and most laws. But brother, when it comes to 
cannabis, when it comes to alcohol, when it comes to marriage, it is 100% the church. Mm. Legislators will not act unless they know they're in compliance with the church. And so, you know, the church was scared because they put so much firepower into fighting gay marriage. And yeah. they knew that, you know, you heard all the narratives. This was, this was the end of the world if we had gay marriage. Yeah. And so the attorney for that the special counsel that the state slash church um, hired came in and said, look, we don't want any show of animus by things that are said. So any gay bill, uh, you know, you shouldn't run it. So I'm like, what the hell's a gay bill? I mean, what are you talking about? And uh, so, you know, this was enclosed. I, I just have to stop you for a minute because to, it's so that you know how my, my mind works, Steve. You, you say, what is a gay bill? I go straight to those like Saturday morning schoolhouse rock. And I want to create a little parody of I'm just a gay bill. I'm only a gay bill. I'm only a gay yeah, bill. Yeah, like the, the, the wheels are turning now. I don't know if I'm going to do anything with it, but I love Looking that. magical on Capitol Hill. <laughs> oh, my. Um, but so, um, you know, they weren't going to give my bill a hearing that year. And so... Uh, I knew there was no way around that. So what I did one Friday is I held a press conference right in front of the closed Senate doors, the main doors. And so I said, this is not how American democracy works. We don't blow up in the streets. We take our toughest issues to our policymaking legislative bodies and we hammer them out. We address them. We disagree fiercely in this forum yet on this one we're running away from the toughest policy issue out there look at these closed doors we are closing the door to this tough issue because we're afraid of it mm. and so you send in blue notes to talk to senators and so on a blue note i wrote here sb 100 that senate bill 100 which was its number at the time and taped it to the door and that was a Friday. So I came back on Monday and the doors were blue. They were covered with blue notes. Everyone had come up to the Capitol, posted some note here, SB 100, or their story on several notes. And the walls were covered with blue notes. It was just phenomenal. And so you, we wait, held... I, I, I need you to explain this for me. So it, it, this is this is part of the way that that senators communicate with others is putting a blue note on a door no you oh, don't your constituents no 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 no, no. so uh, i'm sorry go ahead steve no you go ahead christine you send in more blue notes than i have that's true <laughs> yeah, i've never heard of blue notes before i've heard of blue so, balls but not blue notes <laughs> um so in the house and the senate there are two different colored notes um the blue represents the senate so when i would bring patients up to talk to their legislator you know their legislator We'd figure out who their legislator was and you'd send in a note saying, I would like to speak to you about a certain bill or a concern I have about a bill or please don't vote this way. And then you usually give the reasons why. And that's how constituents can engage with our elected officials. And so Steve being a Senate basically put up a sign of, hey, the, the entire Senate needs to hear this. Please come out and talk to us, the, the people about this. So, so you're, you're soliciting like 
patient stories or people's constituent stories. I like, no, what it, Steve, right, right. That, that's what Steve was doing there. Steve, it was symbolic. Yeah. Go symbolic. ahead, Steve. It was very it's, symbolic. It's, it's symbolic because we go out, we get those blue notes. And if you're a senator who cares at all, you go out. You do. You know, especially if it's your constituent. I mean, for me, someone drove four hours to come to the state capitol to talk to me. I'm going to go out and talk to him. And so you're just you're kind of a no good senator if you don't respond to the blue notes. Mm -hmm. And so that was my point is, you know, here are all the blue notes in the world and we're going to cower. We're going to hide from this issue. This is not how we operate. Mm -hmm. And then the people responded and they agreed. And that's what the beautiful thing was. So we held a mock hearing that in the. This, the Capitol cafeteria one night, we said, come up and tell your stories. We want to hear them. And so, you know, the, so I was kind of taking on the legislature at this point. And, um, but, you know, that's kind of always who I was. This wasn't different is mm-hmm. I always had an independent streak and um, I'm just going to fight hard for a bill. And if you are against it, then you better fight hard too. I mean, you know, so, so we held this hearing and it was touching. It was great. The stories, they were very powerful. Um, but um, we didn't get anything to go that session because the church didn't want anything to happen. So before the 2015 session, I'm getting perfunctory calls from newspapers. And that included the New York Times, Wall Street Journal, Washington Post, you know, I'm sure they had the responsibility, you know, call Utah, see if anything is going to happen in this red state on LGBTQ rights. And they expected me to say, you know, we're going to fight and we're going to. But at this point, I flipped the script. The script that I'd been handed wasn't going to pass this legislation. You know, acting like the church wasn't behind the curtain, pulling the strings was going to allow the church to stay behind the curtain and pull the strings. Mm. So what I told those reporters is I said, I have no idea. I have no control over this. And they're like, oh, <laughs> you, is it leadership? Is it? I said, no, 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 no. We have 104 legislate, legislators. None of us have any control over this. This is entirely the Mormon church. They decide whether this bill will go forward. They decide whether it will pass. People know that their instructions are to not pass this. So if the church does nothing, it won't pass. And and so those big newspapers, all three were like, are, are we on the record? <laughs> so I'm like, I'm like, yeah, we're 100 percent on the record. And so, you know, they're next. So I said, I said, here's the lobbyist for the church. Here's his phone number. Um, give him a call. And so ask him if I'm going to pass my bill because he knows I don't. And so you don't know how the inner workings go, you know, hopefully, hopefully Mormon leaks uh, reveals this to me at some point, Mm -hmm. but I think that played a part because the church will only move when it's getting bad press, when it's Mm -hmm. embarrassed, not to do the right thing in the political arena, just only when it's embarrassed, which means it wants to release pressure. It still doesn't want to do the right thing. It just wants the bad press to go away. Mm-hmm. So the second day of that session, 2015 session, 
I start hearing rumblings that the church is going to support my bill. Um, okay, this is weird. And so the next day they were going to have a press conference. So they had a press conference saying that they were supporting it. Um, and the press release had all sorts of typos, grammatical errors. That's not how the church operates, right? So they were, they were doing things on the fly. I don't know what those internal conversations were. So I was in uh, Democrat Senator Jim DeBacchus's office. And uh, let me add, this is DeBacchus's bill. This is the community's bill that my name happened to be on because they needed a Republican sponsor. So mm -hmm. I want to, you know, yeah, I passed the bill with my name on it, but they're the ones who bled and really fought for this. You know, and they would remind me that at times, Steve, we appreciate the help. These are our lives that yeah. we've, we've been paying a price in the trenches. And so I always want to them. Glenn, just so you understand, I, at the time, I believe Jim was the only gay legislator, but he was not running the bill. That's, mm -hmm. So when he says that when Steve says this is belongs to him, as he knows that the way the state functions, that Jim couldn't run it, that, that Steve had to. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I just wanted for your, your audience to understand. Yeah, thank is, you. is it because they would have thought that it was a personal thing for Jim? Well, he's a Democrat. And he's, he's a Democrat. It's yeah. tribal. Yeah. Yeah, but yeah, so very tribal. So I'm in his office. We're watching the church's uh, press conference and they said uh, we are for uh, non-discrimination in employment and housing. And we're both like, yes. And they said we are for public accommodations laws. And so Debacus, he's like, yes. I'm like, they don't know what the fuck they're talking about. They don't even know what that means. Because, I mean, of course, they're not for public accommodations. They're still not. And so they just they didn't they didn't even know the language at this point. They just knew that they were in a bad PR situation and wanted to make it go away. Mm -hmm. And so this is the bit. This gets us to the part of the story where Christine is talking bad about incrementalism. Um, and so remember Christine and I, we met basically on a disagreement mm -hmm. that I was the Senate sponsor for CBD and she wanted whole plant. And so she and some of her people, they were not happy with me on that. We disagreed on how it should happen. Should it happen incrementally or all at once? And so, you know, in that one, my, my thinking was we need to destigmatize de this a little and this is the way to do it. Let's start here. And I never was, I never agreed to anyone that this is as far as it would go. Now I've subsequently learned that other people were making those representations and I, I can that, see that CBD would, would be as far as they wouldn't go whole plant. Right. Is that what you're saying? Yeah. Right. But so, you know, to my mind, incrementalism was the right way at that point, but on this one, on, uh, uh, non-discrimination Senator DeBacchus who he started Utah Pride he he started Equality Utah I mean Jim is the hero I mean you know you probably shouldn't ever say it's one person 
but whatever list you do in Utah, Jim has to be on that for, mm-hmm. for LGBTQ advances. Mm-hmm. And so um, Jim and I disagree. Uh, after the church said it was for it, it was doing, by this point, I realized it was completely dishonest in the political arena. So what it was saying is we want this to be a standalone bill. We don't want it in the rest with the rest of the code that actually talks about housing and employment, non-discrimination. And so I was saying, no, whatever you do to us, you do to the NAACP, you do to the anti-defamation league. They fought more rodeos than they, they've been in more rodeos than we have. Whatever you do to us, you do to them. Either it's in the same section of the code or I'm not running it. So they're like, okay, fine. We don't need it. And Jim was furious with me. He, he's like, Steve, this is my life. You don't understand. If we can pass something, that is a victory. It is a first start. And so I said, Jim, they're only doing this because they're scared. They're feeling pressure. We, they're already pregnant. Remember, they said they want the legislation. Mm-hmm. If the legislation doesn't pass, then they failed to get something they said they want in the state of Utah. We have pressure on them. We can't, I'm not going to run it unless we have a real bill that's in with this other section because things happen so fast legislatively that if, if this were a standalone piece of the code, there would be some language thrown in at the end that it, it just upsets everything. It would have been a hollow promise that would have vented steam pressure that they were feeling and it wouldn't have actually provided protection for the LGBTQ community. So remember a lot of politics, you have serious passionate disagreements with mm-hmm. people you're working with. And uh, so the church was fine with that. They said, okay, we're not going to fine. We won't Steve's unreasonable. We won't pass the bill this year. And so I said, okay, but you have to understand, I'm fine with that too, because I'll continue to beat you up in the press. I will cont- I'm not going to stop. I will continue to lay blame at your feet. And now you've given me even more evidence to do it. So I think the way this really works out is I'm fine with it and you're not, but you decide what you want to do. And so days were dragging on, weeks were dragging on. We're a 45-day session. And so we hit the point where we're not going to pass the bill because there's just not enough time to work through something this complex. And so Jim is increasingly frustrated with me. And so there was this one weekend that it was clear if we didn't have pretty much agreed upon language by Monday, um, the bill wasn't going to go forward. So we had the church called. We had a meeting at church headquarters that Sunday night. It was Debacus, um, Troy Williams, who is the great leader of Equality Utah by this point, Cliff Roski, me, um, and then a couple folks from the church and uh, their one idiot lawyer. And so uh, it was, I call this meeting the Boy Scout Holocaust um, because the conversation got to the point where they said, okay, we need the Boy Scouts of America carved out of this, you know, 
So I said, why, why do the Boy Scouts need the ability to discriminate based on sexual orientation, um, based on gender identity, sexual orientation? And so he said, well, you know, they, they, they just do. And so we were saying, look, there's a very specific case on the Boy Scouts. They don't need to worry about this. Well, we, we need them in or it can't go. And so I said, this is just ridiculous to put them in. So this idiot lawyer said, there is not another group in the history of the world that has been discriminated against like the Boy Scouts of America. So, so I said, I said, you know, Jews come to mind. And so, so then he said, Oh, Oh, you're going to go Hitler on this one. I'm like, well, no, wait, no, wait. I, you said, then I, I think I'm going to go. And uh, so, so that, you know, this was, we stayed for hours longer, but we left the building. So I'm standing on. Uh, can uh, I can I just ask for a point of clarification? Yeah. I, so so this this Boy Scout issue because this this is before the church separated themselves right from from yes. the Boy Scouts, and so is is what they were trying to do was uh, allow legal discrimination within their own Boy BSA chapters that were part of their wards. That if if you know they wanted to discriminate against somebody. For their sexuality they could yeah i mean to protect have, that you know remember morally straight is uh one of the tenets of of boy scouts and that was put in it's it's you know anti-gay thing and you, you can't have mm. gay boys in the boy scouts well i guess if you're defining morals as sexual morals and straight as gender <laughs> then, well i then, think yeah, that's but why there's... it went in that that was how the boy scouts <laughs> were defining it in the church <laughs> Yeah. So, um, I remember, I, I, I know some pretty morally straight gay, gay guys is all I'm saying. Yeah. I mean, absolutely. <laughs> absolutely. But the church was defining it by being gay. You obviously yeah. were not morally straight. Yeah. Mm -hmm. But so, uh, late night, I'm just standing out on South temple by our cars with Senator Debacus out across the street from church headquarters. And, uh, I said, we're done, Jimmy. I said, we're not, we're not going to get it done this session. I don't, I don't know how we can. And, uh, you know, remember just like Christine and I disagreed, but we didn't blow up our relationship. We're just like, okay, let's find a place we can work together. Debacus and I, we were at odds over whether we should go forward with, you know, a bill that wasn't so robust, whether we should take an incremental step or just solve the problem of housing and employment discrimination. And, uh, but of course we kept our relationship. We have a deep love for each other and, um, you know, we weren't, we weren't going to blow up over that. And so, uh, I said, I said, I'm not going to run it being, just something to release steam. And by this point he realized that's after this conversation, he realized, yeah, that's all they want to do is just release pressure on themselves. They don't want to pass true protections. And so he said, okay. And uh, so went home and then the next morning, like 6.00 AM, my phone's ringing and it's Debacus. And he said, get up to the Capitol. We've had some movement. And uh, so sat down with that same lawyer who obviously had been muzzled a bit and uh, <laughs> sat down with Marty's predecessor and they clearly had their marching orders 
to pass a bill to be reasonable. And so we had conversations and we showed them, look, if you truly want to protect, this is how you do it. And uh, this is a responsible way to do it. Mm-hmm. And so to back this, I'm like, what happened? And uh, so, you know, I think I was right to say we want the whole thing. Yeah. But again, this is DeBacchus's bill because if I'd been left to that, I, it wouldn't have passed. He worked some magic. He wouldn't tell me what his magic was. Hmm. Um, but he told me a few years later that he called uh, Elder L. Tom Perry. Hmm. And he said, you know, you and I have always got along. I believe you when you say you want to pass a bill. Here's the situation. And so uh, Elder Perry, I think, sent the orders. Okay, we're going to be reasonable on this. So we, we passed the bill. And and can I ask a question? Because I remember, uh, Christine, when we were talking um, about your experience, at one point you had been told, don't compromise with the church. Don't don't negotiate with the church. Was that Steve that told you that? And was it no. this this experience that kind of, or that, that was something completely different? That was uh, Mark Madsen, mm, okay. Senator Mark Madsen. So Mark was in the Senate at the same time Steve was, and he was running the cannabis bills. I was working with him on the Hill. And when I sat down with the church in 2018, this is the year of the initiative, they wanted to kill the initiative. This was mm. in June. I had told them we already qualified. Everybody gets a chance to vote on it now. That's not the stage of the game that we're at. And... Um, they wanted, you know, they spelled out exactly, they sent me an email and spelled out exactly what they were going to do. That my only person that I had dealt with the church in, in that moment that I had known was Mark. Mm. But Mark's in Peru. So w- we sent a copy of the email to him and said, what do we do? And he sent me out back like five, six inches of yeah. email text in, in bold caps yeah. Don't compromise with the church. Yeah. You're in a position of strength. This yeah. is basic art of war. I mean, yeah. and when you're, and at that point he was my mentor, he was the legislator I had been trying to work with for several years, trying to get cannabis passed through the means we're taught the little bill on the Hill. Um, that's, he was, he was my person. And so when my person who knows these people is telling you don't compromise yeah. by God, that just reinforced everything in my being that was telling me not to compromise. Yeah. And so which, when, which is also where Steve was at too, right? Like you, exactly. you recognize Steve that the church had already made this public statement that we want this thing to pass, but then they were trying to stick things in it that were reducing the efficacy of what it would do. And you're saying, no, nah, I'm not going to do, I'm not going to let the church weaken this bill. Is that right? right? So, Am I understand that right? right? So, Christine, right. let me. Why don't you carry that story forward? Me, your story, my. Oh, well, the story about how we okay. when okay. we came together. So, Mark tells me don't do that, and then um, months go by, and it's at the end of the summer, and Steve, I think, is approached by people who were my allies asked or told, Hey, you know, the church just came out. They held this press conference in August and they wanted to be in talks with the church and compromise. Um, and Steve told them, no, don't do that. I was never told that that's what was going on behind the scenes. My allies were doing this 
without my knowledge. When I went in and sat with the church months before, I told my allies exactly what was going on. They begged me not to compromise with the church. I didn't compromise the church. The whole point in me being there was getting their buy-in and respecting them as players in our state. I'm not here to kiss the ring. I was coming at them as an equal. And that's the problem is they never viewed me as an equal um, because I wasn't a member, because I was a female, whatever their reasoning was, they knew more than I. And I, it, the situation went really south. Um, they never, Marty never returned my texts. He just went completely cold on me. So I didn't know what to think until right after my Radio West interview, I, I am asked by Connor to please meet with him the next day or have our little team come and meet. And our team came and met with him and he told us that he'd been in talks with the, with the speaker of the house and the church and um, the Senate president and, and they have a bill. And he told me what was in the bill and they were cutting patients um, medication. They were doing all kinds of things that were ridiculous and made no sense at all. They, there were nonsensical things that they were doing to this legislation. And everybody in the room seemed to be very eager about what was going on because they saw a political move. As a patient, I saw access being denied. I saw restriction. I saw cost. I saw everything horrible about cannabis industry being played out in front of me. Um, and that's when I, you know, I, for 24 hours, I was absolutely in anguish. And I finally reached out to Steve and said, this is what's going on. And he said, what? You didn't know about that? It came to me a month ago almost and told me that this was going on. I thought you were okay with this and this is what is happening. Hell no, we don't compromise. Hell no, we go moving forward. Yeah. And, and he reached out to Jim and those gentlemen both came out. They came out swinging because I, at this point, I had been hiding from the public that my health was deteriorating. The stress of doing the advocacy from 2012, 2011, when I started on Facebook to then 2018, I was exhausted. I was losing allies who were jumping ship because they saw political expedience um, was the best route to go, the incremental steps. And I'm standing in a different place, a different perspective. I'm trying to stand in a place of what is right. Yeah. And that's, yeah. and Steve had already been through this and he knew, and he, he spoke my language. We resonated, he got it. And I needed that. I needed both those gentlemen to help me get through the, that moment. So it helps when you know who you're dealing with and, you know, having dealt with the church on uh, the non-discrimination legislation and then the next year, hate crimes legislation, mm -hmm. I knew it very well in the political arena and I knew that it was the most dishonest player on Capitol Hill. And, and by this point, I'm going to say that it was even incapable of telling the truth mm. because it so devalued the truth. And so when it said, when I, when these two fellows said, we're going to sit down with the church, they want to compromise. I knew that was a lie that it didn't want to compromise. It, it wanted to release steam. Mm -hmm. And so I, I told them, I said, I said, you guys, if 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 you go in and agree that the table should be round, 
they're going to hold up a piece of paper and say, we've reached a compromise. You don't need to vote for this initiative. And because it was clear the proposition was going to sail through at this point, no matter what. Mm -hmm. And so they're like, oh, no, the church can kill it. I'm like, there's no way the church is going to kill it unless we go in and help them swing the axe. And that's all they want you to do. Now, I thought those two guys were just being naive and foolish, but, you know, they both got rich off this since then. So who knows? Maybe they're geniuses. Yeah. But so I told Christine, I said, I'm happy to help. But, you know, if you're going to go and sit down with the church as part of these compromise discussions, then there's nothing I can do for you because I think you've already lost at that point. So yeah. if you if, if that's your call, great. But I don't have anything to offer at that point. And yeah. uh, so, you know, we did speak the same language on that. And uh, thank heavens, um, you know, she didn't sit down with them because I, I don't think she would have been effective at that point. And a lot of her great work was carrying... <laughs> Uh, prop to barely over the finish line because it really was the church's best tool to say, because you saw, we love compromise. We hate uh, division and anger. So we've all agreed. Both sides have agreed. There's a better way than the proposition. You don't need to vote for the proposition. And so had Christine been in those negotiations, she just looked like she didn't get her way and was just sour grapes. And, but having, always been outside of that and not being a puppet or a shill um she was able to carry it across the finish line but then also has done a lot of very significant work after the fact of pointing out these are the problems these are the things will prevent that will prevent it from working and she's done a lot of great work to improve it since uh it got hijacked by the legislature and she will continue to do great work yeah. Well, did, did I did I hijack your your story? Sorry, about, uh, no. <laughs> when when I when I asked that question, you you, you were talking about uh, you, you and Jim. You'd, you'd come in on the Monday. Jim made the call to L. Tom Perry. The mm -hmm. church was saying, "Yeah, we're going to move forward with the bill being passed." Is there, is there more to wrapping up that? I mean, of course, there are more details, but no, that was it. You know, okay. it's it's exactly like I had told the New York Times, Washington Post, and Wall Street Journal if the church wants this legislation, it will pass. And yeah. so I didn't pass a bill. The church passed the bill. What I did is I made sure that it was a good bill. And so we had a lot of wrangling and thank God we had the NAACP and anti-defamation league at that point, watching the bill with us, uh, providing great input and, and the church at that point, it, had to do the responsible, honest thing and pass meaningful legislation. Yeah. And it was a huge victory. It, the church did not, you know, they didn't want this to happen. No matter what narrative they, they spin, they were, they were dragged to this point, kicking and screaming. Then we all held up the bill and celebrated, look what we have done. Yeah. You know, part of that, we <clears throat> was forced to do it. But they did try to undermine it with a second bill, didn't they? That's where we got the religious freedom. Or am I confusing? Oh, you? my God. Yeah. Unbelievable. So the bill that we passed yeah. was 296. Yep. And so the whole time, Jim and I, mm -hmm. even after, you know, we agreed we're going to pass the bill, we're like, 
we kind of feel like there's another script out there mm-hmm. that we don't have. Is there another bill out there? Is there anything going on? And so, you know, the guy who's now Senate president, uh, Senator Stuart Adams, he's like, no, there's there's no bill. And he actually was. To my knowledge, there's only one bill in the history of Utah that has two actual sponsors, and that was 296 because I needed an adult chaperone um, on that bill. So you have bills with sponsors and co-sponsors, but this is the only one I'm aware of where you have two actual sponsors. Um, So here's my partner. Here's my buddy on uh, 296. I'm like, hey, buddy, feels like there's something else out there. No, nothing. No. And then when the language hits on 297, so Mm -hmm. this is how numbers work. 296 the bill right after it's 297 so obviously you know they were done in conjunction here's a bill saying that clerks they if they have religious objections county clerks they don't have to marry gay people mm-hmm. we're like what the fuck what have we been talking about all the this whole time? time how does this not relate to what we've done so at that point you know jim and i were like okay to hell with you we're not passing Mm -hmm. you guys are so dishonest so dishonest you can't even answer an honest question if another bill's out there you don't incorporate us and by this point we look stupid to the human rights campaign to all of the national uh uh gay rights organizations they're like you guys are so stupid for thinking you could believe you could trust the mormon church What, what happened with 297 well, so at this point, we're like, mm-hmm. well, the part of the story where I am, Jim and I, we pulled the plug at Quality Utah. We're like, we don't we don't want any of it. We don't trust you. You made us look stupid to all the national organizations to the community mm-hmm. to hell with you. And so then they're like, oh, no, no. Well, we meant to talk with you. Let's talk now. So we actually made 297 a pretty good bill and we passed them both. 297, mm-hmm. where that ended up is if someone has sincerely held religious beliefs that won't allow them to do it, they need to make sure someone in the office will perform the wedding. Oh, okay. Mm-hmm. So so they can kind of exclude themselves. I know there's a word for that. But it wasn't uh, that way. Exonerate themselves, but somebody else right. could come in and do it. So it's not preventing the people from getting married. Right. And yeah, what Christine's saying at first, yeah. It wasn't. Yeah. It wasn't. Government, it was government wasn't going to help you with your marriage. Yeah. That's when we had that other clerk, and I don't know, somewhere down south who was, you know, refusing to marry. That was the same year. Yeah. I don't know if you guys remember that national can you, story. Yeah, oh, in yeah, Kentucky. That was Kentucky. Yeah. That was yeah. Kentucky. Tara something. Yeah. yeah. We had one in Utah County who, uh, you know, they, they weren't going to do it. The county clerk there. Yeah. Put down the weapons that you use against yourself. You don't need them anymore. Hey there, thanks for listening all the way to the end. Now, I really hope that you enjoyed today's episode. I have more to say about this topic, and I'm going to do that with a follow-up behind-the-scenes sharing time episode on Patreon. So, if you're in a position where you can throw me a few dollars each month to support the work that I put into creating this podcast, please come and support me on Patreon, where you'll also get access to additional content. Did you know that I also create sharing time episodes that are available only to Patreon subscribers? I've been doing that for a few years, so there's a lot of content there that you can have access to. So please come and support this podcast if you can. I greatly appreciate it. 
Hi, this is Hillary, Matthew, Ryan, Carol, Ashley, and I like to play bingo online while listening to Infants on Thrones. You can comment on this episode on the website, infantsonthrones.com. And if you really like what you hear, give the quorum a five-star rating and write a short review on iTunes. I did. I did. I did. Anyone for the closing prayer? My worst crime is an inside job. Dark thoughts taking over like an inside mob. I tune into the scene between the eyes and take a breath. Thank you for listening to Infants on Front. Infants on Front. I sit still and watch the thoughts float past me. Never mind the future, never mind what the past be. I like to jump and let the universe catch me. Three, four, watch the beauty blow past me. I keep my pockets like destination in sight. Keep my actions elevated to compassionate heights. I'm walking past the fight, laying down on such a night. Choosing love when I pick up this mic. So we can-